Welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. My guest today is Pete Spencer. Pete is an expert in geospatial in the field of archaeology and today on the podcast we're talking about how geospatial skills and techniques are applied at a couple of different scales. Object scale, site scale and at a landscape scale. And of course what this means for our understanding of, of archaeology. Pete is a freelance geospatial specialist in the field of archaeology and towards the end of this episode he'll be talking about what it's like to be a freelancer in this field, what things are important, what kind of skills you should be considering acquiring and, and if he thinks that there's a future here. Just before we get started with, uh, with the interview, I have published a few episodes in and around this topic before and there'll be links to those in the show notes of the episode that you're listening to right now. Hi Peter, welcome to the podcast. So you are a freelance heritage geomatic specialist. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there's another way of phrasing that, but that's a great sounding title anyway. And, and today I want to talk about the use of geospatial in archaeology. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> great. I'm glad you're ready for that conversation as well. So as always, it's, it would be really great if you could take the time just to introduce yourself to the audience, please, and, and maybe let us know how you got into you know geospatial in terms of archaeology like it, it doesn't seem like it's a it's a natural fit anyway it, at least for me yeah hi dan thank you so much for having me on the podcast as you said my name's pete pete spencer and i'm a freelance geomatic specialist working with archaeological and heritage oriented projects based in the uk and internationally First of all, when you say about the GIS and the geomatics being involved in archaeology, actually archaeology has a very long history of the incorporation of spatial data within its investigations. Within the early sort of antiquarian and early 20th sort of century digs, the ability to record the spatial positions of your finds, of structures, of burials, of the information that you were pulling out, quickly formed a core component of how we came to visualize and understand those sites. And certainly during the 20th and, and now the 21st centuries, that technology or that incorporation of geomatics to archaeology has only, only ever increased, actually, to, to the point now where it forms a real solid backbone of modern archaeological investigation. So how I got into it, when I started in archaeology, I, I must admit, actually, there wasn't a lot uh, of talk around GIS or the digital sort of cartography. At that point, it was still very much done with hand-drawn planning. Some digital capture instruments, such as the total stations, the early sort of differential GPS systems were being trialled here in the UK, alongside the early sort of GIS programmes. But initially, that was very much centred around just the initial sort of capture of data related to hand-drawn planning or individual find locations and, and things like this. Very different to how we now use it in modern archaeology. Of course, the development of uh, geographic information systems has gone apace. The ability to tag rich, complex data sets to your geographical information is there and, and of course the the development of things like 3d imaging laser scanning aerial survey through drones multispectral imaging lidar and the various other advancements in earth observation techniques have, have massively opened up this field within archaeology and heritage based studies hopefully a bit of which we'll touch on in this interview so yeah Ooh, thank you very much. That, that was a that was a great introduction. I particularly like the idea of modern archaeology. <laughs> yeah, that, that, this helps me, and I'm sure it'll help the listeners sort of understand which 
don't know if branch is the right word, but which piece of, of archaeology we're talking about. When I first met you, I, I was stuck in the, the, the mindset of archaeologists digging holes in the ground, making hand-drawn hand maps of, of sites they were excavating, and maybe, just maybe, standing there with a total station or a handheld GPS system and cataloging, I, I found this thing here, putting a point on the map. I quickly realized you know, during that initial conversation that, that it's much more. So let's stick with the idea of modern archaeology. And maybe if you could help us understand how it's being, or how geospatial is being used at, at different scales. So I, I think of archaeology being done at very different scales. If we think about it in terms of like the object scale or the individual artifact scale, can you give us an idea of, of what you're doing with, with geospatial technology there? Absolutely. When it comes down to that sort of individual object or individual element of the data or, or the site, it really comes, the way we use geospatial technology really comes down to two elements. And that's the highly accurate recording of its geospatial location and the capture of high resolution data pertaining to either that object's surface morphology and coloration or the actual substance, whether that be a geochemical analysis or a mineralogical analysis of, of, of what those objects are made of. So in terms of the kind of technology we'd use on site, first of all, that is, is GPS nowadays. We still use total stations to a certain degree, especially when in areas not well covered by the uh, global geospatial positioning system and also internal sites. But really, the, the DGPS has become the standard tool of archaeological survey for the 21st century. Now, we'll be using that on site to record the locations of important finds, the locations of environmental samples, the morphology and location of archaeological contexts or structural elements, or elements such as burials, roadways, and other features or material or objects that might pertain directly to our understanding and visualisation of that site. The actual objects themselves, whether these be pottery, metal, coinage, woodwork, can be treated or, or, or recorded in several different methods. The two most prominent ones on modern archaeological sites are structure from motion photogrammetry and laser scanning. Now, these might be done in the field while the objects are still in situ, as we would say. There's a lot of information to be gained in that context, not just from the objects themselves, but the surrounding geological deposits they're sitting in, or the stratigraphic layers, as we would term them. And also, when those objects are then out of the field and back in the lab or back in the office, we can actually then start using such things as photogrammetry or laser scanning to really pick out the minute detail of their spatial morphology that perhaps would be completely invisible to uh, the naked eye. So uh, a great example of that is RTI, or reflex, re Reflectance Transformation Imaging, whereby we take a series of photographs in a hemispherical sphere around the object we're looking at. We then put those together to create a 3D model of that where we can manipulate the light source being displayed across that surface. This has proven really, really effective in, in pulling up very shallow indentation, marking, carving, imprints that might be associated with these things, and has enabled us to tease out details as to inscriptions or usage of some material objects that even just perhaps 20 years ago would be completely impossible. Wow. Wow, that, that is a brilliant example of how this, how this could be used. 3D scanning, so 
in the the larger geospatial world, often when we talk about 3D scanning or reality capture, you were talking about this idea of, of digital twins. Yeah. And I guess what I'm wondering is if you can create a, a highly detailed you know, digital twin copy of the of these objects, is it also possible to like 3D print them as well? You were talking about you know, changing the light source so you can see these different indentations. My, my guess is that if you 3D printed them in high enough resolution, you could you know that that would have a, a impact as well on to, you know on discovering these kinds of details. Yeah, absolutely, Dan. We're seeing three D printing really begin taking a foothold in the industry now as almost an end process, an end product to the front end of this sort of geospatial data capture. Most prominently, it's been used to create uh, realistic sort of copies of materials such as objects, burial objects, fine jewellery, delicate environmental objects such as textiles or wood perhaps. But really one of the most fascinating examples I've heard of recently in the way it's being used is the ability to create comprehensive global collections of certain material types where we might only have very, very little fragmented and globally distributed material. So an example of this is the skeletal remains of early hominids found around the globe. Now, this is species where we might be talking about the total global skeletal remnants might come to a total of 50 fragments spread out between three different organisations in 10 different stores. Now, before the analysis or, or the ability for researchers to sort of share information pertaining to these objects, would have been very difficult. It would have relied on photography, on written descriptions, or the costly and, and dangerous transport of the actual physical objects themselves. Now, researchers can simply scan these objects, whether it's photogrammetry or whether it's laser scanning, and they can create digital repositories on the internet that enable any researcher with an internet connection and a 3D printer to suddenly have that global collection in front of them for their own direct interaction and analysis with. And certainly, I, I know that it's helped the analysis of these early hominin skeletals hugely. And that, that is certainly what we're finding as well in archaeology when it comes to the reproduction and analysis of rare materials, such as rare object types or rare structural types. And it's really just enabling that much more wide-scale access and analysis by not only members of the archaeological profession, but researchers from adjacent professions or even members of the public. And it's certainly 3D printing and 3D visualisation from an archaeological or heritage point of view is really helping us widen access to these quite difficult materials and objects to sort of share with people. That's kind of amazing. I'm pretty sure the people behind these different technologies did not think that one day somebody would be digging up early hominid skeletons and 3D scanning them, making a library of, of these digital models on the internet so anyone could download them, print them off, and, and try and piece them together. <laughs> it's, kind, it's kind of amazing. So the, the, this was on a very small scale, right? So we're talking about individual artifacts here. What about on a site-wide or perhaps a, a structural scale? You know, where, where are we seeing geomatics play a part there? Well, I, I've got to say, I, I think in terms of the impact of geomatics and archaeology, this is the scale at which it arguably has had the most effect, both within academic or, or commercial sort of orientated operations. And, and really what it comes down to is, is the percentage or the level of data we're capturing pertaining to a site. 
we've now gone from these these quite sort of analog production of recording through hand drawn site plans and, and and vertical sections, which of course in themselves are not a direct data capture. You know, the person who's producing these drawings is is making a qualitative assessment on what's important to record and what's not important to record. So arguably, you, you could say these representations of the sites aren't true representations themselves. They're a product that's been filtered through the understanding and, and knowledge and opinion of, of the creator. So we've gone from that to suddenly now in the 21st century, we can have almost 100% data capture pertaining to a site. We can send up a drone with uh, a LiDAR package attached to it and return sub-centimetre photorealistic 3D modelling, highly accurate uh, georeferenced orthorectified imagery for, for planning. We can have the vertical sections themselves directly taken from the 3D models themselves. And what it really means for us is not only is your, your percentage of data capture far, far, far higher which enables you to interpret and then analyze that site to a much greater degree. But that product, that 3D model, that orthorectified mosaic, is uh, an essentially a mirror, a realistic mirror to the actual real-world state of that site. It's not a product that's been filtered through somebody's knowledge or determination on what's important. The LiDAR unit captures everything without a bias or the bias that only exists in what it's able to capture or how it's been programmed. So in terms of, from an archaeological point of view, suddenly we're able to have these much more detailed views uh, uh, of the sites, while at the same time reducing user error in the production of, of, of these things and reducing user bias. And furthermore, these 3D models we're increasingly finding, and the geospatial resources that are associated with them, form very powerful data sets for future research in themselves. You know, the reaccessing of a site or the revisualization of a site through these data objects is not the same as through the analog objects. They enable a much greater sort of interaction with a site or an artifact or an area that might have been destroyed now. And we're finding them a really powerful tool in, in that terms of that sense of enabling future researchers who are perhaps better equipped with knowledge or better equipped with investigative technology or methodology to really return to these sites and almost be able to excavate or investigate them anew, as it were. And you just wouldn't have been able to do that very easily or successfully from the analogue output. So, yeah, no, it's really changed the way we view sites and interact with sites, both in real time and as an archival sort of resource. When I think about excavating these sites or documenting these sites but my guess is some of them are very sensitive places and and i wonder if part of like the, the magic here is that i don't have to touch everything that i can capture everything in a, in a lot of detail without potentially destroying or damaging or altering that the site oh, i'm doing it yes abs absolutely that is um, archaeology is always time critical often a lot of the archaeology we do nowadays is development led and so the archaeological investigations are happening within a time cost framework that is not necessarily of the archaeologist choosing we have to fit in with the client and their stakeholders often quite tight time frames for development so the more we can increase that data capture for the brief window we have those archaeological sites open the better and also archaeological investigation um, excavation by its very nature is destructive 
through excavating features, digging up pits, exposing structures, removing stratigraphical context, we're essentially destroying that which we're studying. The production of digital twins of these sites or these structures or these objects enables that destruction to not be avoided, but to, to some extent to be offset. If you can create a very realistic, highly accurate 3D model of a site, to what extent does that differ in existence to the actual site itself if that digital model enables just the same kind of inter interaction investigation as the actual real-world site did itself in the first instance? So we've talked about the use of photogrammetry and you know, LiDAR scanning these sites to create the, these models. I used to work for a utility company, and they were using things like ground-penetrating radar to see underground. And when I think about archaeology, oftentimes I think about digging stuff up, things that are covered, things that are buried. Do you see that being used in an archaeological site investigation? Absolutely. We're always interested in non-intrusive survey methods, precisely for the reason we've just discussed. And uh, certainly in the UK, ground-penetrating radar now has become the sort of de facto industry standard alongside magnetometric sort of survey. And it really is enabling us to create these very detailed 3D visualizations of subsurface deposits. It's been used to great success recently in some of burial ground survey, where we're able to locate the individual burials, burials themselves without even having to put the, a, a spade in the ground. That is then also being trialled out on a much wider scale in terms of earth observation data. So just as the geophysics enables us to view the subsurface deposits without destroying them, increasingly we're finding satellite-derived earth observation data is enabling us to visualise archaeological landscapes or archaeological sites in a similar way that mitigates the, the need to dig them up. And so when we eventually do come to excavate some of these sites, the usage of, of such non-intrusive survey methods enables us to much more highly target our interventions, which means we destroy less archaeology, we're able to make more effective use of our funding and our time, and we're re really able to start drilling down the actual physical intervention, the excavation, and really pin it to a series of research questions that we're able to formulate beforehand. And, and certainly, yeah, remotely sensed data, whether that's coming from the geophysics or from the satellites or from aerial survey or metric survey, you know, really plays a, an important role in helping us figure out what these sites might be like and what kind of questions we can ask and what kind of information we might want to get out of a dig before we even turn any soil over. I think that this is a brilliant segue. I, I want to sort of move on and talk about the analysis of this and how you're doing that and how using geospatial to do that as well. But if we stick with this idea of you know, capturing data, and we, we're just talking about doing this at a landscape scale, you know, satellite, drones, aerial platforms, that kind of thing. Is this also a method like of prospecting, of looking for areas? Like instead of knowing, okay, there's this area I want to capture, you know, we, we have satellite data for the entire world. We have large chunks of aerial, like high quality aerial information as well, or information captured from aerial platforms as well. Is anyone doing any prospecting on these data sources at a landscape scale looking for archaeological sites? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Earth observation data has changed the way we interact with archaeology and heritage on a global scale. And in particular, you know, LIDAR, 
plays a huge role in that. Multispectral satellite imagery plays a huge role in that. And it's been used to massive effect in South America and in other sites such as Anger Wat, heavily sort of forested sort of regions where the overlying vegetation really sort of hides the extent archaeological features, whether they're buried and only visible are earthworks or whether they still stand as extant structures. And certainly in Anger Wat, what through the use of LIDAR and large-scale LIDAR surveys, they were able to show what had previously been viewed as a series of individual sites were actually just part of a much larger urban conurbation. And actually the landscape that these temples and religious sites were sitting within, which up until that point had largely been thought to be natural, was actually shown to be completely man-made. And actually, it was a huge con- urban conurbation consisting of uh, extensive logistical sort of development. There was roadways, waterways, a really complex system, water uh, system there to, to supply fresh water to the agriculture and residential sort of areas of the city. And, and similarly, they've done that in South America as well, where you go to areas like the rainforest. And, and again, you know, largely what we knew were these large scale extant standing structures in the form of the temples and some settlement sites and through the the use of lidar and most importantly its analysis within a geospatial system where they're also able to host information pertaining to the location of known archaeology sites and other things like that they were able to show again you know these were not natural landscapes they they were huge urban conurbations huge grid works of road networks water networks residential areas agricultural areas there. And I certainly know um, Sarah Parsak, a a US-based archaeologist, has used Earth observation data to huge effect in Egypt, where even just using services such as Google Earth, she's been able to highlight how high-resolution satellite imagery, certainly in areas of the Earth where you've got these uh, exposed landscapes, are really useful in visualising archaeological sites. And what it's shown us actually is that a lot of the time, what we see is quite rare or quite well hidden sites or or archaeological feature classes. Actually, the preservation of archaeology across the globe is probably far higher than we've previously ever thought it was. She's been able again to show not only the preservation of individual sites, but entire neighbourhoods, entire city quarters, entire necropolises and mortuary areas and she has done all of this just through satellite imagery she's been able to show the impact of modern looting upon these sites through satellite imagery and she's even then gone ahead and and, and gone and set up a crowd sourced mapping platform where ordinary people can go receive some training in basic remote sensing and then review satellite imagery to highlight potential archaeological sites and you know that has had a greater amount of success as well it's amazing. So you're talking about so not only identifying sites, you know, but by using this earth observation data, but also monitoring them like, okay, we've identified these things there, these particular areas, and then you could monitor them over time and see how, like, for example, is anybody looting them? Are they being maintained? And you could see change over time. So that, that's incredible. Is anyone actively working on using AI to, to identify these sites? Oftentimes on this podcast anyway, AI is the magic bullet for, for everything and people want to be able to automatically identify you know, cars and parking lots, where the ships are moving to and from, that kind of thing, roads from satellite imagery. 
are people doing the same sort of thing when we think about identifying archaeological sites? That's a really interesting question, Dan. If you'd have asked me 10 years ago, I, I would have said, no, not really. There was a, a lot of emphasis in the 70s and 80s in, in archaeological um, academia about using computer analysis to tease out spatial patterning within, within sites. Unfortunately, the, the technology of the age didn't really quite live up to, to the, the hopes of the researchers. But certainly what we found within the last sort of 10 years is the use of AI or machine learning in archaeology is booming. It, it is suddenly you're seeing, much like many of these other industries, suddenly you're seeing it everywhere. And certainly here in the UK, one of the most interesting and exciting sort of applications of this has been a company called Arc AI Limited, run by uh, Dr. Iris Kramer. And basically what she's pioneering is the ability of machine learning to automatically identify certain site types or feature types from high-resolution LiDAR data. Now, even just you know five years ago, the high degree of spatial morphology or change in spatial morphology you see in archaeological features was seen as being impossible to enable that kind of automatic classification. But now that we've got these much more robust sort of AI systems and much more extensive training data sets for them, suddenly AIs can not only do this, but actually they do it better than human operators. And again, it's that removal of bias. It's that removal of tiredness. It's that removal of human error. And what she's shown basically is some of this data was compared to what we call HR data in the UK, so historic environment record data. And these are basically just big cultural heritage inventories of sites and what we would call heritage assets. And they could be buildings, they could be structures, they, they, they could be archaeological sites. But what they've shown is in areas where perhaps the HR only had 2,000 known sites, the AI is able to tease out double that number, triple that number, and still recognize all the original sites within that. Now, the big problem we've got is just like any other remote sensing project, we need to get boots out on the ground to go ground through these potential things. And that'll be when we can really evaluate the accuracy of these approaches. But certainly for now, they seem to be very successful. And it's a very exciting part of, of archaeology at the moment. Yeah. So there seems like two two very different data sets here that, you know, the machine digital first data set that, that we're talking about, for example, but we've also got this really rich history of people being out in the field, collecting this data, documenting these sites in a very you know, analog manner. How do you conflate those, those two different data sets or it, it, does it even make sense to try? Yeah, again, really hot topic, really hot topic until even perhaps a year or two ago. And again, we saw some early sort of examples, especially primarily coming from academic sort of research projects of people adopting digital collection methods. You know, whether this comes down to simple things like standardized geospatial recording or the standardized collection of, of textual or numerical data through the use of pro forma. And what we've really seen, especially in the UK here, what's driven that actually has, has not necessarily been research. But again, it's been infrastructure, it's been the development sector, and is increasingly, as archaeology has become involved in these more complex and more large-scale infrastructure projects, the need to rapidly collect this data, assess it, and simplifies it into outputs that non-technical audiences can easily consume has meant digital recording has really, really been 
pounced upon, really been grabbed with both hands. And what you've seen is, is a number of archaeological companies in the UK now have moved away from analog recording completely. They don't write records. They don't write on sheets now. It's all collected via tablet. The data that is collected, whereas before you might have had somebody recording a large amount of free text in their own vocabulary and their own structure, how they describe uh, a feature type or a site, that is now all becoming standardized, which uh, enables us to stop building these idiosyncratic data sets and start building data sets that enable for cross-analysis and cross-assessment on a very wide scale. And also, these records are now linked in with digital photography that's geotagged. The geotagged digital photography is linked into your geospatial or your GIS data collection. And really what it's enabling you to create is this single immersive digital environment where every element of that data is interlinked with another element of data and really is enabling these large-scale or widespread analysis of archaeological information that just simply would not have been possible through an analogue methodology. So can you talk us through some of that analysis that, that all of this is enabling? Like, and maybe if we think about at a site-wide scale and then at a landscape scale, what, what kinds of analysis are you doing? Like personally, I can see a ton of value just seeing the stuff on a map, right? Ah, it, it's there. It's, that's two meters away from each other. I can see how these things are connected. But like, walk me through the kinds of analysis that you're doing, that you're seeing site-wide and, and then landscape. So for instance, if, you, if you've got a big linear infrastructure project such as HS2 or, or a road development scheme, what that kind of digital data collection enables you to do is really scale up your analysis from individual sites to multi-sites or even to a national level. And yeah, just like you said, you know, the digital recording enables you to create fantastically detailed mapping of these individual sites. Within those individual sites, you'll have a point distribution layer pertaining to your artifacts or your ecofacts. Now, any geospatial professional knows when it comes to point data, there's quite a number of interesting analyses you can do with that, whether that's to do with clustering or patterning within that point data based on secondary inputs such as from an archaeological point of view, might be chronology or period produced or even material type. Now, that kind of cross-focus analysis on an individual site is also possible on entire landscapes now. So if I had 500 archaeological sites identified across this linear infrastructure project, before we would have perhaps talked about each of those sites individually and looked at the kinds of, of artefacts and, and information we'd find individually. But now we can say, right, out of that 500 sites, what percentage of those are Romano-British? What percentage of those are medieval? We can categorise that information in a GIS environment to quickly sort of render that viewable to technical and non-technical audiences. But then we can start drilling down with it into cluster analysis or route or network analysis. And when we start feeding in other data sets, which are certainly now becoming more available, so you've got large geological open data sets, you've got large topographical open data sets, you've got large hydrological open data sets, we can start really posing questions of sort of like, right, we've got this cluster of medieval settlements happening in this part of the landscape, but almost nothing of medieval date in this upper area. Now, why is that? We, we can look at the roadways that come through there, the names of the roadways. How long have these roadways been in place? How does that relate to your topography? Are these all situated in homogenous, topographically homogenous areas? 
So are we looking at a clustering based on industry or economy, or are we looking at a clustering based on this simple fact of it's easier access along a valley bottom, say, rather than over the moors at the top? Most of all, what that geospatial technology allows us to do is move away from primarily a humanity-based or qualitative interpretation of these sites and really start pinning quantitative data to that, to a scientific analysis or statistical analysis with confidence rates and error rates. And it really just helps pull these interpretations into that realm of science and data and real-world value. This is perfect. But the, the next thing I wanted to ask you was just around this, this idea, because you know, it, it sounds fantastic. But, but I guess what, what I'm curious about, in your experience in using geospatial tech in, in archaeology, in, in this manner that you're talking about, doing these kinds of analysis, do, do you find that, is, is it challenging common understandings of, of these sites, of these finds? It, it, it is challenging them. So it's not just putting numbers around them, like you're saying, and confirming what we already know. The 21st century understanding of human development within the globe, I, I would say, is rapidly developing. And every few years, it seems like there's a new, a new pinnacle in terms of either a technique applied or a new theory that turns previously held ideas on, on their heads. And, you know, really a big part of driving that has been this input of technology or analytical methods from outside of archaeology. So, um, for instance, DNA analysis is having a huge impact on how we not only assess ancient populations, but how we visualize their spread and development across the global stage. And of course, linking that kind of scientific data into a geographical environment enables us to really start visualizing population movement and population spread and density in ways that perhaps we'd have never been able to do before. And it is really shifting our ideas on how we understood how specific cultures spread across the globe and also whether even things like material assemblages, what we would call the groupings or collections of pottery or tool types or structural types associated with a specific culture, whether they are associated with specific populations or whether they're shared across populations. And it, it is having pretty fundamental outcomes for how we understand human activity and early social behavior for archaeology. So, so that sounds exciting on the one hand and a little bit dangerous and scary on the other hand, depending on you know, which camp you're standing in. If you're ready for something new, this sounds great. You know, please challenge my ideas. Help me understand the world from a different perspective. But my, my, my guess is a lot of people aren't. A lot of people would like the regular kind of our archaeology. I like the history that I know. I want that. Are you seeing maybe in a broader perspective people pushing back on this? When you come and say, hey, well, actually culture is quite different than what we thought it was. Your history look, looks different than perhaps what you imagined it to be. I think archaeology has always been susceptible to this because it can be of such a personal significance to an individual or group. You know, heritage is incredibly important to all of us. It defines our identity, both as an individual and, and a wider society. And it really is the, the coordinates, as it were, that we link that identity on our existence within the, the natural and cultural sort of worlds. So, yeah, I, I think archaeology has always been a focus point for this kind of discussion regarding humanity. But I certainly think in the 21st century that the subject itself has perhaps fallen victim to that of which a number of other subjects have now with the rise of so much data. So much of this information, so much of this data is now in the public sphere 
and so much of it is of open access that really anybody can start now reading into and inferring their own ideas, their own theories from this data. And I think what, what that sort of leads to is, is this massive generation of interest, which is really positive and great, but also discussion and theorising in ways that are perhaps not the way we would do it within archaeology. Or perhaps they create structures of knowledge which are flawed or open to bias themselves. Certainly the removal of individual bias or group-based bias is something in archaeology we're really, really hot on because it is so easy to distort the evidence you're seeing through your own personal lens of opinions. And the methodology we've created for collecting data, interpreting that data, is heavily biased towards that removal of bias. Now, people outside of the industry or people outside of the subject, perhaps, might not have knowledge of that or might not be aware of those sort of internal biases as much. And I think it's very easy to create complex narratives from the kind of data we have now in the public realm without those narratives perhaps ever being subjected to any kind of professional or serious sort of analysis and and discussion. So like most digital technology or most new technologies, I I would say it's a double-edged sword as they always are within society. Any technology is full of huge potential and full of huge danger. And we see that that story repeated time and time again throughout the archaeological record. So I'd I wouldn't want to say that we were immune from that as well. I, I think exactly the same sort of thing is happening in modern society now as well. It's interesting. So you talk about the the um, something that I, I think a, a, a topic that not a lot of people comment on, and this is the idea of of open data. So yeah, is it good that more people have access to data? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it is. Is it always good? Well, no. And I think it's an interesting time we live in now with this confluence of data and tools, and you know everybody can has enough of each maybe to be just a little bit dangerous (laughs) and throw into the mix distribution. And we see distribution in terms of of social media. So everybody is a media company now. So you've got this interesting time where we have access to data, access to tools, access to knowledge to figure out how to combine these two things. And we have distribution for the ideas that we create. I think it's an interesting time, I guess is what I'm saying. (laughs) <laughs> absolutely absolutely it seems nowadays with heritage every few weeks go by and there's a new discovery uh, a new theory a new idea that's going to turn things on the head so yeah and i think geospatial technology is absolutely at the center of that within heritage and archaeology so yeah no it, it's a very very exciting time for geospatial professionals in the industry yes yeah, so, so let's talk about that for a second right at the start we introduced you as being a, a freelancer in this industry is it a growth industry? Are people, are you finding work? Are you well paid? What, what, what do you see as a, as a freelancer working here? Yeah, within archaeology, the, the sort of that geospatial work is seen as a specialism. So I'm actually able to command a pretty sort of high day rate associated with my work. It also means my work's very val- variable, actually. It can span from, from on-site sort of data capture to, uh, you know, post-excavation sort of assessment and analysis of that data, and even all the way down to the other end that we would call sort of dissemination of that information to a public sphere. We're finding that geospatial data actually is really good for that end of it as well. Members of the public, non-technical audiences are just able to consume complex archaeological knowledge when it's tied 
to a powerful graphical representation or a visual much, much more easily than they would just through an endless table of, of bone counts or a really thick piece of text about the development of, of a building. You know, if we can show that visually, they're able to get that much more clearly. So I, I, for me, it's been a real positive getting into it, actually. It's massively increased my skills base. And most importantly, I, I would say it's massively increased my transferable skill base. I'm increasingly finding now with the geomatics work, there's a lot coming from individuals or organisations who perhaps aren't directly associated with heritage and archaeology, but an element of their work touches upon that. And they're interested, again, how they can bring that archaeological or heritage-based data into their own workflows to create products of value for their audiences. So, for instance, you know, with housing development, the ability to capture high-quality geospatial data enables those sort of development companies to incorporate that information within the, their sort of, whether that's media or publication materials associated with the development, or even helping them preserve the remains themselves within the modern development there. So um, it's, it, yeah, it's, it's really becoming a focus point for archaeological development. And what I would say, in terms of that archaeological workflow, geospatial is, is the backbone upon which increasingly all of these other disciplines hang their data. It, it is the central road between these data silos that enables this large cross-subject or cross-focus analysis and assessment of this, this complex information. What would you say to someone like, like me? So I've listened to you now for half an hour, 45 minutes, and it's, I can hear the enthusiasm in your voice. I have a set of geospatial skills. I understand how to use different software types. I, I understand different technologies like LiDAR, 3D scanning, and I, and I can see the thing, I can see the potential in the stuff you're talking about. What would you say to me? I want to go out and do something like, like what you're doing. I want to be a freelancer in this space. I want to be hired by a company to, to do this kind of work. What, what kind of skills do you think I should be focusing on? First of all, get your permissions in place. Because now the technology is developing to such a level that it's quickly becoming of a complexity that we're not perhaps able to best sort of incorporate in our education and teaching of archaeology. So I, I would say if, if you want to do it, First of all, get your house in order in terms of your, your technical credentials, get your drone licenses, get your surveying licenses, get yourself a DGPS, get yourself a drone, definitely, you, because work will be there. And then you can start building your knowledge of how these techniques are applied within the historical environment rather than doing it the other way around. But increasingly, you don't have to go freelance to sort of do this work. There's a number of large archaeological companies here in the UK that have entire divisions devoted to geomatics now. And, and I would argue, where is the freelance? I like the freelance because it gives me a huge variability in my work and the focus of that work. And I get to do a lot of different things. Do I get to do things in as much depth or detail as if I'd been in one of these large geomatics divisions? No, I, I don't think so. So I, I would say to anybody thinking to get into the heritage sort of side of things, there, that decision whether to be freelance or whether to be employed is a really important one because it will change the type of work and the scale of work that you do. I think that's, that's a really good insight to share with the audience. I appreciate that. On that note, I want to thank you very much for your time. I really enjoyed the conversation. Like I said earlier, you can really feel the enthusiasm when you're talking about this and it's infectious. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. And I also appreciate you slowly but surely walking us through this. It's complex. There's a lot to think about. 
I'm sure we've just you know, scratched the surface of this, but it's been an enjoyable conversation. If there's somebody out there who listens to this and thinks, I'd like to reach out to this guy, I want to know more. Maybe it's about archaeology, maybe it's about a different use case, maybe it's about being a freelancer in this space. How can they get a hold of you? Where, where can they go to do that? I operate a LinkedIn page, both for myself and my um, company, Vertex Geomatics. That is a new venture, which will have a website uh, associated with it very soon. So people will be able to get touch through Vertex Geomatics. But primarily for now, LinkedIn, I'm very active on it. Feel free to drop me a direct message. I love talking about these things. I love talking about archaeology. I love talking about GIS. So I might bore your ear off, but please do. If anybody feels like getting in touch, please do. Awesome. Th- thanks again, Peter. R- really enjoyed talking with you. All right. Thanks, Dan. I really enjoyed it as well. I really hope you enjoyed that episode with Pete Spencer. As I promised in the introduction, there will be links to where you can catch up with Pete, where you can connect to him in the show notes today. There will also be links to other episodes which are related to this episode. So if you want more about this topic or in and around this topic, check out the show notes of the episode that you're listening to right now. I guess the only other thing to say is thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening all the way to the end. I really appreciate it. So we are constantly being told that the world is trending shallow in terms of our attention span. So the fact that you choose to spend so much of your time listening to this podcast, it really blows me away. I'm, I'm really grateful. And on that note, if you have any suggestions for me, feedback for me, topic ideas, please let me know. The best way to reach out to me is through mapscaping.com. You'll you'll find contact details there, or I'm sure a quick Google search will bring up Mapscaping on Twitter or my personal LinkedIn profile. Okay, that's it for me. That's it for this week's episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. I hope that you'll take the time to join me again next week. We'll talk then. Bye.